0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this
1: episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Joe Loriente, founder and CEO of URSA Major. URSA Major is the first American company to develop rocket engines for application in both hypersonic systems and space launches. Roger and Joe discuss his background working at SpaceX and Blue Origin, founding URSA Major, hypersonics technology, and the National Security Innovation Base. Joe Lorienti, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be on.
0: Now you're the founder and CEO of Ursa Major, which we're gonna talk about, Uh, but quickly, you're an elevator. Someone says you're CEO of Ursa Major. What does that mean? How do you respond?
1: We design and build rocket engines for everything from space launch to hypersonics.
0: That was a great succinct answer. (laughs) I suspect doing what you do is less simple than that. Uh, Quick response. We'll get into that. Uh, Your background here is that you graduated from the University of Southern California. Then you went on to work in the intelligence community uh, and they were propulsion engineer for SpaceX and Blue Origin. So from USC to some of the most innovative companies that have really disrupted the world of space and launch that is SpaceX and Blue Origin. I don't know, I'm thinking 18, 19 years old, you go to USC uh, working in a, a lab perhaps is not the big draw I think most Americans would assume when you go to USC how did you land in the lab and not I don't know at the the football game on Saturday or any other things that would tantalize an 18 year old at USC
1: I absolutely went to the football games. I'll never speak ill of USC football, but, uh, I think most people think USC is palm trees. It it absolutely is rocketry as well. We, when I was there, this small group was, uh, founded to build and launch rockets out in the desert. And I think many of us spent more time doing that than in the classroom. uh, Uh, Stop there for a
0: second. You're at USC is known for rocketry. You say, um, and they, they take you to a group going out to the desert. Explain. Take me yeah. through the the 19-whatever-year-old Joe Lorienti and how you fell in with this group.
1: Yeah. I So I grew up in an aerospace family. My dad worked on satellites uh, his entire career. So I remember being a little kid and watching rocket launches. And his important piece was on top of the rocket going to space, but the smoke and fire coming out of the bottom was way more fun. So uh, <laughs> I always wanted to be around propulsion, around rockets. And I went to the University of Southern California to study aerospace engineering, which at the time, you know, early 2000s had a lot of, uh, a lot of aircraft, a lot of aviation coming out of Southern California, but I was lucky. I, I was there during the year, this small group was stood up, uh, the USC rocket propulsion lab. And this was like an entirely student group, no professor involvement outside of just overseeing safety essentially. And we would design and build rockets to go fly in the desert with the hope of being the first full student group to make it to space. And about 15 years after that, uh, USC did become the first student group to get to space.
0: Uh, What does that mean? The first student group to go into space and, and they did it that you just said uh, 15 years after you, you started, how close did you guys get?
1: We got really close when I was there, we had done, I think we launched six or seven rockets uh, that were all slightly too small to make it to space. Uh, we had one rocket go about Mach three, Mach four. So almost hypersonic as, as a student group, which is pretty, pretty entertaining, but, uh, space, there's a, an internationally recognized line, the von Karman line, which is hundred kilometers above sea level is sort of the demarcation of you've made it to space. And this group was founded with the intent of breaking that line with, with a small rocket. These, these rockets were, you know, a foot in diameter and, uh, maybe 15 feet long and it's just a one shot, super fast dart going off the ground, trying to make it to space.
0: Okay. Uh, I want to get on to to other things, but I'm kind of fixated (laughs) on Joe Lurante college student taking a 15 foot rocket and trying to get into space out in the desert. Were, were there concerns on the part of university, the military? I don't know the FAA that you you guys are, are are launching these things. I think I heard you say Mach three, but even if it was just less than that, Mach two. Here I am, the, the, the parental instinct here. That sounds dangerous, Joe. How we, did you How we, did you do this?
1: <laughs> you know, we always really uh, took safety to heart. I think that was the the founder. He was probably 19 years old when he founded this team, but. He had a lot of experience kind of garage tinkering. So he he was a good mind for safety. And it is funny that this is what we're spending time on because I don't think I've ever spoken about this in in an interview or anything. Uh, but yeah, we, the entire hope here was get really hands-on build some hardware and go fly it. So, uh, mission accomplished. We, we built this amazing team. And I think all of the students that were in that are now you know They were early employees at SpaceX or Blue Origin, or they founded companies, and uh, URSA has a handful of them here. So we'll Hold on. So the just, teammates
0: from USC, some of those folks, your colleagues at your company, URSA Major?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out. Another. Uh, we've got a few employees here at URSA Major that came from that team, maybe three or four. But we also, uh, another founder of Relativity Space came out of that team as well. So uh, more companies kind of popping up around the world from from USC's Rocket Propulsion Lab.
0: That's amazing. We're going to jump to Ursa major just a moment, but but one of the things that got my attention as you're describing uh, your journey, obviously you shared that you know, your father was involved in aerospace and uh, rockets and NASA and all that, so that would get you interested. But you're doing this at a time uh, when it's a big tech world that's attracting mm-hmm. people and you know software and and all the type of developments that now seem to dictate not just the public markets, but what's in the hands of our children every day and the right. various applications, you decidedly went in a different direction. Did you ever kind of feel the gravitational pull to, mm-hmm. to big tech and away from aerospace?
1: That's a great question. You know, I, I think it was, it, it was almost as though the pendulum were all the way on the other side for me when I was graduating from college Aerospace was NASA or the federal government. Uh, it was research labs at universities, and, or it was a big uh, uh, prime contractor: Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman. So the startup world just felt non-existent to me. M- my option was a big institution, really, uh, really deep learning, whether it's research or academia. And my my toe in the door at SpaceX was sort of. Uh, it was sort of accidental. I I had a friend actually from that student group at USC who who was an early employee at SpaceX that said, don't go do that government thing. Come, come join me here. And I I remember even going through the interview process, loving what I saw. I saw hardware, I saw innovation, uh, really driven employees, but I remember not being a believer that the mission was going to be accomplished, that this internet founder in Elon Musk was going to go disrupt uh, United Launch Alliance, a joint venture between Lockheed and Boeing, and it just it felt like it was a stretch to come into a hardware domain with a software approach, and I, I think I was proven wrong pretty quickly.
0: That's fascinating. So, for someone with your interests in the hardware in space, you just described, you know, the options were, you know, labs and and, and government agencies, government supported uh, elements. Or very fortunate for you, you had this one company, SpaceX, and kind of idiosyncratic founder, and you know you were skeptical, yeah. and and but it's kind of so interesting that that was seems to be the only place to go. Bezos later, I guess, would would found Blue Origin, and now yeah. here we are, you know, decade plus later, and you know you have of course big tech, but the m- most exciting thing that's happened in the past few years is this huge opening in the private sector, uh, in terms of commercial space, um, the market, it's a trillion dollar market. And, and here you are, Joe Loriente with Earth for Major. Now you got your own company, uh, really breaking new ground, trailblazing here, uh, in this space market. And so it's really absolutely. grown kind of around what, what SpaceX opened. Did I get that
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what we're doing here at Ursa Major would have been impossible had Elon not made the progress he made. It it was, I think, 10, 15 years ago, if I had tried to, uh, let's say 15, 20 years ago, if I had gone to Silicon Valley and tried to raise money for a a capital-intensive, hardware-rich space company, I would have been asked never to come back to Sand Hill Road. But uh, after seeing Elon sort of pave that path, I'll really credit two companies. It was SpaceX and Palantir. Yeah. Those two companies that went into a government domain and really were able to out innovate and outpace the incumbents.
0: Just give us a feel for young Joel in SpaceX, not proven, not kind of established right now in the sense everybody looks at SpaceX as, oh, of course. Right, of course that that booster you know, can kind of land that booster back you know and and, and reuse it. I mean these are things that yeah. we've gotten used to see on social media, but you know kind of seemed like harebrained and crazy not not too long ago. What was that environment like where you have this huge personality founder and all these young uh, emerging engineers who who kind of have a sense of where they want to go, but it's not a, a, a path that's been established.
1: Yeah, it, I'll set the backdrop uh, with really the environment around SpaceX at the time. This was when Senator McCain was uh, kicking down doors on Capitol Hill that the U.S. should not be buying Russian rocket engines. We we didn't have an industrial base that suited the needs of. Uh, U.S. space launch. Just pause there.
0: Obviously, McCain was pivotal, but explain to our viewers and listeners what the the rocket market was or was not and and why you had this kind of joint venture and reliance on Russia to get to space. Just kind of outline that for a moment, then give us the environment at SpaceX.
1: Yeah, uh, we can go all the way back to the Cold War. The, prior to two, three years ago, at that recently, the majority of rocket launches happened during the Cold War, this sort of standoff between the Soviet Union and the US for space supremacy. And that really declined after after the end of the Cold War. There, there was uh, mutual collaboration. We've heard about uh, the Soviet or Russian space agency launching US astronauts to the space station, the the international cooperation of the ISS, the international space station. But really what came after that was this decline of access to space and things got more expensive. And the US tried to combat that with a joint venture between Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Um, They were the two largest space launchers. They each had their own rocket system in the 1990s. They created this joint venture in the early 2000s, but What it did was create really reliable access to space. The U.S. could launch satellites whenever they needed. We could get uh, national security payloads, commercial payloads to space. But there was one player in the U.S. and costs skyrocketed. So SpaceX was really created and funded as a means to decrease costs by 10x uh, to get to space. And they've, they've absolutely gotten, they, they've reached that pinnacle of reliable access at a really low cost point.
0: Amazing. Okay. So you get this experience and you move on to, you know, blue origin. Um, but of course that not only did they bring down the cost point, right? It was, it was reliance on Russia, which in the years that followed became from a geopolitical and security standpoint, less and less uh, appealing. Absolutely. You're seeing all this. Um, and then you get this idea to found URSA major. Tell us about that. Right. I,
1: I don't think I, I was the inevitable founder. I, I certainly, I enjoyed the small scrappy entrepreneurial nature of these companies, probably all the way back to that rocket group in my undergraduate years. But uh, I think URSA major was the result of an angsty engineer who wanted to see better technology and the model around us of, uh, you know, either these there was these prime contractors that were buying Russian rocket engines, or SpaceX, Elon has to go do everything himself, and you have to be a billionaire founder. I wanted to evolve that into the next level of let's let's take a technology approach and outcompete everyone else in the market. Uh, I think the.
0: Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say that seems like the um, a harder path, right? <laughs> you know, you don't have the government business, and, and and you don't have the uh, the unicorn billionaire, you know, f- founder, whether you know Peter Thiel or Musk or any of these other folks. I mean, you're you're just saying you're kind of investing in in your idea and thinking, come up with something that's better, more efficient, and hoping that others will 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 buy into it.
1: Yeah. It was really a confluence of a few things. Uh, The first is the point I mentioned that investors had seen Elon become lightly successful at SpaceX. So it was clear that there was a business path here. It wasn't just a shot in the dark. The second was 3D printing. And we we can really dive in there. But additive manufacturing or 3D printing was just becoming mainstream enough that you could make real things out of it, not just toys, uh, the ho- hobbyist parts.
0: Oh, so, so you're, you're, you're kind of at the right moment, the right time where 3d printing out of manufacturing could actually be something that you leverage in this space. Explain Absolutely. just for a moment, like, you know, the 3d printing out of manufacturing, isn't something you have in like in you know, a high school, what you're doing here and what's involved, or maybe it is it, ex- explain how you're leveraging 3d printing out of manufacturing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In the mid two thousands, let's say 2010, uh, 3d printers started to come to market that were made to 3d print metal. And this really changed manufacturing for costly industries like aerospace, where you could quickly iterate on parts you didn't need a lot of tooling fixed tooling or infrastructure and you could create you could design and create components that outperformed their legacy parts because you were you had the design freedom to 3d print anything so uh, really that coming to market around the time that the aerospace industry was being seen as a viable marketplace completely changed our approach or enabled our approach really.
0: What did, a, what did a 3d printer for the type of thing you were seeking to do uh cost back in that time? Was that, was that your, your big, big cost?
1: Yes. Uh, big cost both in capital and, and time. It, it, there are a number of manufacturers of 3d printers now, and it's a million to $2 million per 3d printer typically, but the time involved to qualify and, uh, ensure that the 3D printer that you're interacting with does what you want it to do is, is the more costly aspect.
0: All right. So, so you're founding URSA major, you have 3D printer, you know, out of manufacturing, you have this idea, you get a kind of legacy of SpaceX and all that. Um, You go to the investors and say, okay, what are you going to call this company? You know, you're coming out of SpaceX or Blue Origin and you say, URSA major?
1: It's it's the constellation that is the Big Dipper. It means the Great Bear. And uh, I knew I wanted a space themed name. I didn't have any ties. I I wasn't going to call the company. Uh, you know, we kind of joked that it was going to be Space Z instead of SpaceX, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it really. It was we wanted something spacey, well, look you, to the stars.
0: Right. I mean, you're, you're quite successful, so obviously it worked. I in preparing for this, I said, well, you know, why go for the bear in the constellation? You know, there there is an eagle constellation, Aquila. <laughs> Did you consider Aquila? That's kind of more American. The bear was it a play on Russia? You know, we're gonna were, you're, you're
1: poking maybe, the bear. Maybe California. We get we get the question of was it the California? Oh, California. A lot, but, uh, we're we're a Colorado company, and I don't think there's a pine tree constellation. Uh, Aquila <laughs> would have been great though. That's. That's a recommendation for our next engine name, maybe. That's that's good. Hey,
0: I want credit for that. It happened here on the Reaganism <laughs> podcast, Joe. Uh, you name your engines as well, I saw. There, there's two. Maybe describe what you're doing, and then, and then we'll talk a little about hypersonics. But you have Hadley and Ripley.
1: Right. We knew we wanted to differentiate, not just have a part number. We didn't just want engine one, engine two, engine three. So uh, we, early on in the company, selected sci-fi names as the names of our engines. So Hadley is from a Ray Bradbury short story called The Veldt and Ripley is from the movie Alien.
0: And ha- and and how are they doing? What are the reviews of your of your engines?
1: Everything is looking great so far. The the Hadley engine is now in production, which with 3D printing is is a very different environment. We we 3D print all of the primary parts on these engines. So production line looks very different than an automotive production line where you've got welding and machining kind of in situ, uh, with 3d printing, we can stockpile an inventory of these parts and hand assemble engines. It's, it's very much, uh, kind of a rust belt Americana assembly line where we have highly trained professionals assembling rocket engines every day. And then Ripley is just coming to market next year. So we're really excited. That's about That's a that. smaller it's, one, correct? Ripley's the larger one. The larger, excuse ones. me. Okay. okay. It's about 10 times the size of Hadley and it's coming to market next year. We we went through a redesign effort because we saw the market trending more toward reliability. Uh, the market in the early, I say the early days of new space, 10 years ago, was willing to take a lot of risk. And we've been able to drive down cost of hardware without taking on risk in recent years. So we, we designed our Ripley engine to be a bit more powerful, but also to be able to launch national security assets uh, in a really low-risk manner. Okay, let's talk about this
0: for a second, because your engines are doing, at least to me, jump out, uh, two reasons. They cost a lot less. Maybe you can kind of put a finer point on that for us, what you're doing on the cost side. And then on the capability side, you're also doing things, well, they're just more capable, um and and you know, we're gonna be able to talk about hypersonics. I mean these are these are powerful engines you're building. You've really migrated from uh the deserts outside USC to <laughs> uh I don't know, what do you call it as whatever you're in the valleys of Colorado. But yeah. um explain to us the great appeal and, and, and the disruption that Ursa Major uh is, is carrying out right now in in space. Um both on cost and in capability or 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 something else maybe i'm yeah. missing it
1: no that's exactly right i'll, I'll start with the capability side there, there's a reason the us was dependent on really still is dependent on russian rocket engines we've we've been flying them for 30 years now and it's because they were extremely high performing and extremely reliable the the soviet heritage of these rocket engines really just created a, a very dependable platform that the US didn't want to steer off of despite the national security concerns, the supply chain concerns. And really the thesis behind Ursa Major was we are not going to go out compete that technology if we are building vertically integrated companies that are only consuming the tech that is necessary to to accomplish one mission. So uh, on the performance side, it was almost a must have, we, we knew our engines had to be as high performing as the Russian rocket engines really outperform everything here in the U S and we could, we could build a new innovation hub for propulsion here in the U S we could make the U S the, the kind of pinnacle of, of propulsion capability of rocket engine capability.
0: Right. And so the way you've gone about it is just kind of departed from the traditional approach to propulsion. correct?
1: That's right. Yeah. In the Cold War, everything was cost plus government contracting. So a rocket engine would be designed for one mission and sort of retrofitted for decades, uh, very much like software was in in the Cold War era. But that switched when Elon came along to let's design and build an engine for us to use at SpaceX. But that's not a market facing engine. It's not the best technology. It's, It's what's needed to accomplish the mission today. And SpaceX is famously flying what they call the Merlin engine. It's Merlin D block five. So they've gone through many iterations of their rocket engine versus having a a market leading one today. And that's the performance side. I do want to touch on the cost side. Yeah, go ahead. You brought up a really good point there. Our business model in having high performing rocket engines for the entire market necessitates a lot of applications. So we have space launch, we have national security customers, we have hypersonic customers, and that immediately creates an economies of scale where our factory isn't just engines going to one rocket it's engines going to many customers and we can manufacture at scale we can manufacture more quickly and drive our costs down so we're we're providing engines to both us taxpayer and private markets the the
0: cost is lower because you're providing it to to many different users or is it also something about the way you're making the rocket and the approach you're taking propulsion that also gives you? you know, uh, an advantage
1: on cost. It's both. It's both the, the design for additive manufacturing definitely is a, a cost advantage where instead of, instead of being dependent on a foundry and doing these castings that, that you would traditionally use for rocket engines, a single million dollar 3d printer can print one of our engines in a few weeks. So much lower cost, much quicker.
0: The, the, the cost of 3d printing and has it gone down since, uh, you, URSA major procure their first million dollar 3d printer or the now, because you are doing more sophisticated and more diverse set of, of customers, you know, it's, it's, it's requiring, a, you know, a, an equally more sophisticated 3d printer.
1: The printing, pr- the printer prices have been pretty stable, but we have done a really good job of building out a supply chain of what you use to 3d print is a, a powdered metal. So right. you have to have the providers of these, these powdered alloys and, We've developed partnerships. We've developed a deep supply chain where we can drive down the raw material costs.
0: Talk to me about that because when I was preparing for this, I thought, okay, well, their vulnerability has got to be the vulnerability of everybody else in the world of manufacturing, particularly sophisticated stuff. That's a non-technical term coming from me, but that somehow it, it, that's going to be the challenge: getting it from you know places around the world because you know the types of metals and materials to to participate in space generally are specialty precious things that you can't get your hands on. And uh, for the most part, don't reside here in the United States. You probably need to go to China or other regions of the world, which um, are more challenging and create vulnerabilities in supply chain. So how, how are you working through that, Joe Lorienti?
1: Yeah, great question. On the raw material side, it's uh, 3D printing allows sort of an advantage in that we aren't sitting in a line behind auto manufacturers at a foundry or a forge. We we just need this raw powder, but that raw powder has to come from somewhere. So right. many of the alloys we use are nickel-based, which is very nice. We can traditionally, Western supply chains have, have the ability to, to supply those alloys. The things that we don't actually print uh, or some of the alloys we don't typically use are things like titanium and Titanium actually very famously uh, primarily comes out of Russia today. So yeah, titanium
0: and like, tin, right? Tin is the tin, other one. Yeah. So that, those are rock, not rock. required by Ursa major or they, or they are a uh, challenge for you guys.
1: We use very little of them. So <laughs> we we haven't really been susceptible to any supply chain issues there. Uh, I will, I will call out one alloy in particular that is almost primarily used in space uh, is niobium. And this is a that really sounds
0: like something out of Marvel movie. I'm sorry. I'm not familiar <laughs>
1: with it. Sense. Yeah, it's, it's a very high temperature alloy. So when you see rocket engines in space and the, the nozzle is glowing bright, bright red, that is niobium. It's, it's a really high temperature alloy and it's extremely limited. Now you can get it out of Brazil. I think is, is probably the most friendly, uh, provider of niobium, but, uh, we're, we're pretty lucky. We aren't too impacted by supply chain issues on raw materials today.
0: This is fascinating. So, founder, CEO, URSA major, you're growing, you're selling the private sector, you know, space market, you're selling to government, intelligence community. We'll talk about hypersonics in just a moment, I promise. You got to raise capital from the Valley and other places. Now, they wouldn't laugh at you anymore. You're post kind of SpaceX era, so they're interested. You got to deal with government customers You, of course, are constantly innovating. How do you distribute your time? You're thinking about supply chain. What what sucks up the most time? Who's your
1: biggest headache? That was a big sigh. That was a big sigh. I don't know that the most time and the biggest headache are hand in hand. I I don't want to. uh, I I, I don't want to. I I like to put my time areas that are really impactful and productive, and we see a great return. And right now, it's actually in the the beltway. Uh, We see that. This learning curve of what is space, how is it impactful, how is it important, is really coming around. So, uh, I think where where I currently spend a lot of time, and where we will, where Versa Major will spend a lot of time, is that education and that push toward innovation. So, I, I want to touch on something you said about us selling to commercial markets and selling into the government. I think that's the single biggest strategy lever that we have. Is if we if we went all in on only selling to the government. We're likely to face the fundraising challenges and the revenue challenges that has that have either hampered or destroyed a lot of companies that want to sell into the government as early phase startups. So we took the approach of let's build technology that is dual use. Let's make a single rocket engine that can work for a commercial launcher, but can also work for a hypersonic testbed. And that's that's really proven successful for us, and it's helped us to get a little bit of share of voice where we can explain why space is important, why hypersonics are important. And uh, I think we'll continue to spend a lot of time there.
0: Let's focus on hypersonics. What is hypersonics? Why is it that you have Washington policymakers that are not technical people or engineers, but they, they, they love to talk about hypersonics. What's happening in the world that makes this so relevant to our safety and our national security.
1: Yeah, hypersonics really are any aircraft that can travel within the atmosphere, so not in space, at five times the speed of sound or faster. So these are just, in in essence, really fast aircraft or missiles or uh, drones. And it, it's a technical challenge to to accomplish. You, you have to have when you're when you're traveling that fast within atmosphere, you have atmospheric pressure, you have drag, so. You, you need really high temperature capabilities because the aircraft wants to wants to be really hot. You also need a lot of controllability. You need really capable electronics. You can imagine, you, you know, when you're flying in an airplane, if if you've got your cell phone on, even though you're not supposed to, it's it's not going to have service. It's it's not because you're 35,000 feet above the ground. It's because you're traveling so quickly. So uh, the the electronics and communication side of hypersonics are a huge challenge. But why this is important today is it's so bleeding edge. It's obviously an investment area for uh nations with defense, with offensive and defensive capabilities. So we are seeing Russia and China specifically invest heavily in hypersonics as a new means of deterrent or standoff or uh what we've seen here in Ukraine is uh, simply a, a quick strike capability.
0: It was used in Ukraine. That was widely reported, right Joe? Correct.
1: Yeah, Russia is
0: using hypersonics in Ukraine right now. And that's Indefensible. I mean, nothing. I mean, certainly Ukraine, but even the United States uh, limited, if any, ability to defend against something coming at, you know, at Mach 5, right?
1: That's correct. And not only is it indefensible right now, it's largely indetectable. So we are so early in hypersonics that we are still developing the means to detect if hypersonic weapons are being used.
0: How far behind are we? I mean, you're, you're working on the engine side. Um, and yeah. The way I'm imagining in my non technical mind is that you need speed to get up into space if so you're going vertically, and then you could know, take that engine and just make it go horizontal, and then all of a sudden you're in the hypersonics world. I'm, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but um, is it the engine, the, the long pole in the tent for the United States at this moment, or, or some of the other things you're just hitting on? Hypersonics she- with heat and the like.
1: Yeah. The, the propulsion is absolutely a, a pain point for the United States right now, but I, I'll just say, I think it's all of the hardware. I've, I've mentioned the, you know, first majors, a hardware rich company. I said, I, I got into this space because of the hardware. That's it, what we're facing in hypersonics is a deficit of hardware and testing and manufacturing. So uh, I, I won't speak to how far behind we are. It, it's clear the U S is not fielding any hypersonic weapons, but adversaries are, but I, I will point out, you know, this year we've seen more investment in hypersonics and we've seen more attention to it than ever before. Um, president Biden just uh, instituted a defense production act, uh, pointed toward hypersonics, I think two weeks ago. And a signal I really liked, uh, back, to, back to my undergrad days, one of my internships was on the uh, global Hawk program at Northrop Grumman. And
0: this is the unmanned, uh, big, huge unmanned system that was really pivotal yes. in, in, in the wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan.
1: Correct, yeah, thanks. This is a, if you've seen this, it's a drone with really, really long, skinny wings so that it can stay up in the atmosphere for a long period of time. Uh, The Air Force just took their Global Hawk fleet and pivoted it to the Pacific Ocean for hypersonic testing. So these Global Hawks will now be interacting with hypersonic missiles or vehicles as. As a communications mechanism, so huge investment to take that entire fleet and say, let's use it for hypersonic testing.
0: So that shows the level of seriousness from the administration, the Defense Department, absolutely prioritizing in a, in a theater that is Indo-Pacific, where we know hypersonics will will, will play a huge part in terms of uh, security there. Um, absolutely. What what will be Ursa Major's role in hypersonics going forward?
1: Early on, you know, we've been very lucky to establish sort of a technological foothold, but also some trust within the industry on the hypersonic testing aspect. I've mentioned a lot of this technology development is in a hardware deficit. The best way to develop hardware is, is to test it. it. Even back to my SpaceX days, Elon had a mantra of uh, test like you fly. So part of what made SpaceX so successful was quickly building and testing hardware. And we haven't been doing that in hypersonics to date. So Ursa Major has some commercial customers, but we've also done a lot of government work toward advancing hypersonic testing capability where we can fly in a hypersonic environment for a long period of time. I,
0: I understand that. I, what I've read about hypersonics, clarify this for me, is that you need these like wind tunnels that create an environment of like Mach 5, 6, 7, whatever it is. And China's got them, Russia's got them, and the United States maybe has one or two, and it's not right. quite as fast as it should be. How are you testing, Joe?
1: We're, we're creating a testing environment without a wind tunnel. And if you look at how, say, the Boeing 787, a normal aircraft is designed, you'll use a lot of computer-aided simulation to design the outside of the aircraft, but then you'll make a model of it. And you'll stick it in a wind tunnel for hours on end. You'll collect a ton of data in different environments. In hypersonics, that's extremely difficult to, to make a wind tunnel here on the ground that can flow air over a model at five times the speed of sound, typically you're only operating in that environment for milliseconds. These, these wind tunnels are very, they're very limited in how much data you can collect, which means it's a very slow development campaign to get to a finished vehicle. I I kind of joke. It's like if you were trying to develop the iPhone, but it could only stay on for a second at a time, you're never going to get software built. So (laughs) uh, So what's the alternative? What are you guys doing? What our customers are doing in the commercial and the government space is building hypersonic flight test beds, where instead of just flying a missile, you have something that is reusable and can fly in a hypersonic environment for minutes on end. So what's really exciting is for every flight that one of these uh, vehicles, maybe it's a three minute flight or a five minute flight, uh, every flight that these undergo consumes you know 20 years of wind tunnel testing. It's just a really exciting leap in the testing capability for for our technology. It must be much more expensive than a wind tunnel, isn't it? I actually don't think it's that much more expensive because the reusability aspect drives the cost down quite a bit. And if you look at the cost per you know millisecond or the cost per uh, terabyte of data, it's much much less expensive.
0: You mentioned when you were talking about hypersonics a moment ago. That government, but also commercial interest here. Uh, lay out the vision. Why, what is if you go to Silicon Valley and they say, "Okay, well, you're 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 leading in hypersonics. Why are you in California? Go to the Pentagon. They're the only market for you guys." What story do you tell? What picture do you paint of yeah. hypersonics and commercial use?
1: Uh, hypersonics are just early, so you're right. Today, today you should be looking at the Pentagon if you're working in hypersonics. But much like if you were working on uh, a point-to-point uh, internet in the 1970s, 1960s, you were working with the Pentagon. So it's just early, but the the future of hypersonics in the commercial space looks like extremely fast transportation. It's it's DC to London in less than an hour. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's the future here. But
0: How, I mean, the you talk away. about future. I mean, it, you know, it, this is like century plus out or you could see people getting on a, a plane that's traveling at Mach five and, you know, you're someone serving you, you know, your latte while uh, while you're going Mach five to London.
1: Oh, they, they won't even have time to get the the drink card out. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be a really <laughs> quick flight, but uh, I, I don't think it's a century. I think it's uh, toward the end of this decade, early next decade is when we'll start to see that capability really unfold. But the next 10 years are going to be, un, un, they're going to be unmanned. It'll be unpiloted aircraft. It'll be drones. So uh, we're in the early days of that technology development and that's the path it's on though.
0: And, and Joe or majors engines, um, you know, whether Hadley, Ripley, or, 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 or Aquila, perhaps, um, <laughs> well, you know, they'll, they'll have a place. I mean, you, you, you your goal is to uh, supply those engines for in the future, commercial flight.
1: Absolutely. Hypersonic we, speeds. It won't be any of our existing engines. We very intentionally, there's, there's a gap between, uh, human rated and non-human rated technology. And we've, we've taken the non-human rated technology just from a safety and, and reliability perspective, but uh, a future product. Absolutely. We, we want to be the propulsion company and that can be space propulsion. It can be hypersonic propulsion, or it can be human rated aircraft propulsion down the road.
0: Cool. Let's talk about the overall environment. You, Joe Lorienti, founder, CEO, of Versa major, and, and others like you find yourself in, which, Within the Beltway, they call it the National Security Innovation Base, uh, and that's this generation of innovators disrupting with disruptive technologies that we all know are going to be critical uh, to our national security. Whether it's artificial intelligence, you know, robotics, quantum, or what we're talking about here, right? I mean, uh, you know, hypersonics. Yeah. When you recruit and go to the the Joe Loriente of 2022 sitting in a desert outside USC experimenting with, with an engine. Are they motivated to come work for you? What is the level of interest and motivation, uh, to working for a company that is unabashed, not only working in the commercial space, but also the government space and, and, and why support our national defense and national security. Does that help you or hurt you as you recruit Joe?
1: I think it largely helps. It, it, I, I think, uh, It really depends on the environment and the individual, but what we've seen is the world is coming around to how critical space is for national security and sovereignty. What what we've seen here at URSA Major is uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has driven every nation uh, toward building a sovereign space capability. So when, when we speak with these young recruits, I think they really get excited about that. We are enabling the future of... Uh, either national security or national initiatives with Western democracies. That's really exciting. I think where, where we're really looking to advance some messaging is why is space a public domain or a national security domain and something that is really important to commercial markets. And what I'll really point out here is For for the one SpaceX we've created here in the U.S., we have some other great defense companies. We have some up-and-coming space companies. China is investing in another 10 SpaceX's that they are trying to build domestically, and these are all state-sponsored. So we, as a private company, have to really push our technology into the hands of the end user as quickly as possible, and we have to make sure we don't stop beating the drum of why is space really critical and really important, not just to the commercial markets, but national security.
0: In the national security world, we have our Space Force now. There seems to be recognition, all of kind of government and national security stakeholders that what you are doing at Ursa Major is important. That, that's my going in assumption in speaking with you. But it seems to be that there's an element within government, I don't know if it's the acquisition officials, the people who are buying, or the old processes, you know, the classic government bureaucracy and the challenges there, that... You know, are are, are challenging you. Uh, where do you find, uh, you know, the, the the big challenge as you penetrate the government space and national security space?
1: It's absolutely challenging. I think you've probably had on your podcast many people that talk that have talked about acquisition reform for technologies into the Department of Defense or or civil space. But uh, what we're really the the model that we will continue to advance is if we have the best technology, if that technology is winning in a commercial market, it should win in the defense market as well. And that hasn't always historically been the case, but we're seeing a lot of change that suggests uh, this is understood. And I think it's it's not necessarily a changing of the guard. It's just an increase of number of companies like a Major that are developing great technology and becoming more and more competitive.
0: Joe, what would what do you want to see? What will we see that kind of will be that moment you're like, okay... We've crossed that Rubicon. We've you know we've we've overcome that hurdle. Yeah, you know, we're they get it now. What what is it? Is it a big contract? Is it a certain type of practice that you're going through right now, which you're like, this is so dumb, but because they're just stuck in their old ways, I have to do yeah. this. What what what, what is the what is the indicator, the lead indicator for you that okay, we are not only getting intellectually, but in practice, uh, our our government, our Department of Defense, you know, is is acting in a fashion that shows they get it.
1: I, I think we're starting to see that. I think SpaceX really has advanced the understanding of space and the uh, understanding of risk tolerance and go blow up rockets because that helps you create a safer rocket for when you have people on top of it down the road. But I, I think what we will need to see in the industry next is. Companies with a new model, companies like Ursa Major, companies like Anduril, companies like uh, Relativity, winning larger and larger national security contracts with commercialized technology. And we're, we're in the early days of that. But um, it, I think just seeing those names be in the room, seeing those names be around the table will go a long way.
0: Joe, are you optimistic that the United States will lead into hypersonics?
1: I am. Um, Why? I think the if you would ask me that a year ago, I might not have been so positive. But I think that the focus and the resurgence of attention and really bipartisan support uh, that we've seen this year tells me we are on the right path. Uh, I think I did read recently that for every dollar that the U.S. spends in hypers or that the U.S. spends in defense technologies. China gets five to one when they put a, do, a dollar into their, their tech. So that's the gap that needs to be the
0: bridged bang for, for the buck is your point, point, right? I mean, they're, yes, they're getting, yes, well, five yeah, to one. longer conversation. It, it, I would probably make some arguments against that because we count the dollars we spend on our people. Uh, right. they don't, but nevertheless, we, we need to get more bang for the buck. Inflation isn't, ha- isn't helping though.
1: It's not, it's not. And I I think, you know, that's, to me, that's just a learning curve gap. If it's, if there is a five to one bang for our buck uh, in, in technology development and the defense in the defense sphere, I I think that the U S can catch up with more shots on goal, more innovative technology. We we've always been, we've always out innovated other nations. And I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. We have to, we have to really, take bigger risks and take bigger leaps than we have been over the last 20 years. But I, I think, I think we will.
0: Last question. Then we're gonna to go to the lightning round. That kind of goes back to where we started young Joe Lorienti working at SpaceX and blue origin. Are you on their radar screen now? I mean, is like Elon Musk know about first <laughs> or major and, and what you're up to, or, you know, has, uh, Are we still a ways off before that big personality and now very big company, uh, sees you not perhaps as a competitor, but just as a player in this space.
1: I think Elon's definitely aware of us. I think he's got a lot on his plate, not just SpaceX. (laughs) Uh, He's got a lot of things going on, so I'm sure we're not front of mind for him. And that's probably where we'd like to stay for a while.
0: (laughs) Well said. All right, let's migrate to the lightning round. This is where we ask all our guests to share their favorite book on president Reagan speech by President Reagan or Reagan quote, I'm guessing, I'm just going to anticipate here, this may have something to do with Reagan and space, but I won't prejudge. You have at a Joe.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that, it's a great question. I, Reagan obviously had a lot of great quotes, great speeches around national security and defense, but but one that stuck out was very space related. It was after the uh, Challenger disaster in, in 1986. Uh, he, he had a quote about space being free and uh, I've got it in front of me if, if you'd like me Go, to have at it. Uh, he said, I've always had great faith and respect for our space program and what happened today does nothing to diminish it. We don't hide our space program. we don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We continue we will continue on our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews and yes, more volunteers. More civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. I, I think that's fantastic. And after I've touched on risk tolerance and taking big risks, uh, the first time we lost lives in this Challenger disaster. You know, we we had lost some lives in, in ground testing of the Apollo missions, but to have lives lost in a flight on Challenger, and then for the president to say something like that, I think it was just a great sign of leadership from President Reagan.
0: That that's a good one. I remember in grade school, uh, watching, watching that launch, um, yeah. and, and then watching the president speak afterwards, uh, really a kind of good history behind that in terms of the speech and, and, and president Reagan's words, but they, yeah, definitely still should inspire and, and drive us today. Um, Strategic Defense Initiative? That's not that, that coming up at all. The SDI program. Yeah, I think Star that was Wars. My
1: number two. This the Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I, this one just really, I think it encapsulated what space is for many of us, and it's it's hopeful. It's it's looking forward, and after a disaster, to come out and say something that's so inspiring. Uh, I think that just encapsulates everything that space is about. <laughs>
0: Joe L'Oriente, thank you so much for being on the show. Great conversation.
1: Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.